the reason I thought of the nine marks as I did was because I saw it was unusual to be a mature or growing Christian in a church. Uh, and I just thought it shouldn't be like that. It should be normal in a church to find people who are actually growing as Christians. And so I started to, to look and think and pray and look at scripture and think, well, what, what's going on? And I just started jotting down some thoughts about why aren't churches more populated with people who are normally growing as Christians? And so I thought of various one of the things that I now call, you know, these nine marks of a healthy church, a, a biblical concern with discipleship and growth. And then part of that seems like, well, you've got to be able to say what a Christian is clearly in order to teach that. And that means part of that has got to say what a Christian isn't. So I started looking at this idea of church membership and church discipline, you know, bringing them in and putting them out because that kind of defines it. And then also behind that, of course, is a biblical idea. Well, then how do you decide what a Christian is fundamentally comes from what you think the gospel is? So what is the gospel? And depending on what you think the gospel is, well then, okay, then what's conversion? What does it mean to become someone who believes this? And then what kind of evangelism do you practice in order to get these people in your church in the first place? And then, of course, the framework of that is the biblical theology. Okay, well, what, what is the Bible telling us as a whole? What's the, what's the framework of it? And then behind that, where does it all come from? It comes from the Word of God, if we think the Bible is the Word of God. And so uh, kind of having a a commitment to an understanding of expositional preaching. That is that what we want to do when we gather is hear from God. And so the minister of the word is supposed to give himself to reading and explaining and preaching and applying God's word to us. And then the other one is just biblical church leadership because I thought, well, if you're going to make some changes that a commitment to these things is going to require in most churches, you're going to need some pretty solid leaders who are going to have wisdom and courage and humility. These nine marks are things that are biblical. They're things that we see in the scriptures when we read them. And some of them may not be very obvious because they haven't been being done in churches for a while, and some of them are very obvious. Some of them people talk about a lot. But these nine marks are things that are absolutely vital to the health of the church. We're people who will die without God's word. Left to ourselves, we will perish forever. So expositional preaching is what God has given us to tell us the truth about himself and ourselves, to tell us the gospel. Expositional preaching is critical when it comes to being a faithful pastor, when it comes to being uh, a faithful leader of God's people. Uh, as pastors, we're called to not just preach, but to preach God's word, to preach the gospel. Expositional preaching is making the point of a passage of scripture the point of your message. Making the point of the biblical text the point of the sermon. It's exposing God's word to God's people. Well, I don't have a mandate to preach what I want to preach. I have a mandate from God to preach his word. And, and the best way to do that, I think the most faithful way to preach the scriptures is to preach them exposition, to expound what God has already said to his people. Right there in one of his last letters to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Uh, in fact, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, you know, who is, is going to appear, do this. So before you do anything else, Timothy, do this. Preach the word. It helps people to actually understand the Bible for themselves. They can actually get from the text exactly what the text says. And as a result, they learn to read the Bible for themselves. It's deriving. Uh, the meaning of the text 
and given it to the people as a banquet, as a, as a great supper on which to feed. Uh, for we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this exposition, preach, exposition preaching that helps us give the people every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the end of the day, I want my people reliant upon God's word, not upon my cleverness, not upon my personality, not upon uh, what they might think are particularly witty or insightful ways that I may communicate, but upon the word itself. And that's what will sustain their soul. Having talked about expositional preaching, I don't want people to think it doesn't matter what you're actually saying. That the only thing that matters is that you're opening the Bible, reading it, and claiming you're explaining it. No, I want to kind of nail down the product as well. I want to make sure that what you're saying is actually consistent with what is in the Bible. Because the Bible has very specific content. God speaks through his word to reveal himself to us. And that means we can get it wrong. So in our preaching and in our teaching in our churches, we want to make sure and get it right. The term biblical theology can be used in two ways, either theology that's biblical, what some people sometimes call systematic theology, or uh, biblical theology, which is a, a method of studying the scriptures as one story culminating in the person work of Christ. God has revealed himself progressively through scripture. So there's a picture being built up through thousands of years of God's interaction with his people, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and seeing how all God's purposes come together and focus in Christ. It's as we have a sense of the, of the whole of Scripture that we're able to rightly then sort of divide and apply the parts of Scripture and to live more consistently uh, in God's will and uh, to live more consistently uh, by His grace. I think it's extremely important for pastors to know how the entire story of the Bible fits together. So that any particular text that they're looking at, uh, they not only understand the, the immediate meaning of that text, they understand how it fits into the whole. That prevents us from, from doing all sorts of terrible things to Scripture, like ripping things out of context, misapplying, uh, making false promises. So biblical theology is understanding these great themes through the Scripture that God has developed in history. Now, through the history of Israel and then in the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the apostles that's recorded in the rest of the New Testament and teaching those things clearly in our, our preaching and believing them ourselves. The very center of biblical theology is the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The gospel isn't just a sort of feeling that we might have. It's not a resolve to have Jesus as a friend or example or to live right. The gospel is the good news that tells us the truth about God. The gospel is the only way sinful people can be reconciled to God. The gospel is the motivation for our obedience as Christians. The gospel is what enables us to worship God, to come into the presence of God. Through the gospel, our, our worship of God is acceptable. So the gospel is central in the life of the Christian and needs to be central in the life of the church. And so where we need to begin is with a clear understanding of the gospel. The gospel is that, that great news, that great story, that great accounting of what God has done to redeem sinners for himself. A holy and a loving God has sacrificed his only begotten son, who himself was perfectly righteous uh, and obedient to the Father. 
um, so that sinners who were anything but righteous and anything but obedient uh, might not be left filthy in our sin and left the objects of God's wrath, but might be redeemed from his coming wrath, cleansed by the blood of Christ, made now the objects of his love, uh, children in his household. Uh, that message is utterly unique in the world. It's all about him that I find my freedom not in living for myself, but in living for my creator. And I don't deserve to be given a chance at that kind of life. I deserve to be cast out from his presence forever because of the way that I've robbed his glory rather than live for it. And yet in Christ, I'm being brought into a relationship where through his sacrifice of paying for my sins, I can once again be restored. This is from God. I can't make this happen. I can't create this. It is outside of my power and competence. But as I read, one guy said one time, God interrupted me on my way to hell. God did something I could not have done myself. And a church then is full of people who gather around the gospel and recognize that in our own lives. That is the best news we have ever heard. Okay, what I'd like you to do is, and we'll get to this passage of scripture later, I'd like you just to open to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, and just hold your place there. We'll actually get to that passage a little later. Exodus chapter 34, and verses 6 and 7. And before we begin, I want to, again, mention this book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I would love for every family in our church to have a copy of this book, to read through it. It's in its third edition, third printing. Um, this new edition has a foreword by David Platt. We've listened to many of David Platt's sermons here as a church family. It is endorsed by some very godly, godly men. And uh, on Amazon, it's $15 for the paperback. It's $9 for the Kindle edition. But I will say this, if for some reason you can't afford that, and, and you can just tell me that privately through email or text or um, just see me sometime if you honestly can't afford it I, I will give you a copy I always have additional copies of this book so if you can't afford it I will give you one I think it's that important for all of our families to have one of these what I want to really focus on these next three Sunday nights is this question what is a healthy church what is a healthy church would you know one if you saw it would you know a church is not healthy if you saw it? And I think that's a really important question because we have a lot of different ways in which we evaluate a church. Some of them are kind of shallow. You know, do they have a cool praise band? Or do they have a big church building? Do they have nice facilities? Um, do they make me feel warm and fuzzy when I come there? But even beyond that, sometimes our criteria for evaluating a church, all of us, all of us must be careful with. For example, we may go to a church and say, do they have good children's programs? There's nothing wrong with saying that. Children's programs are often, or children's ministries are often important to parents. And we go to a church and we say, oh, do they have good children's ministries, and that's important 
but that's not you they could have good children's ministries not be a healthy church some people really get caught up in music I talked to someone at a funeral dinner not from our church not too long ago boy they want a church where they sing hymns that's what they want in a church nothing wrong with that we sing hymns hymns are good we, we always hope to incorporate them in in our uh, church singing but just because a church sings hymns doesn't mean it's a healthy church or we may say do they have a missions program do they put an emphasis on missions that is important but you need to know what kind of missions they have. You need to know what they think and believe about missions. So just because somebody says we put a lot of emphasis on missions doesn't in and of itself mean it's a healthy church. And I just say that to you, that this can be a little bit tricky, and we have to be careful on how we evaluate this. I say this to all of you young men and women. If you're a teenager here tonight, if you're in your early 20s, there is the possibility that someday you're going to get a job that moves you away from here or you're going to marry someone and move away from here and you're going to be looking for another church and I ask you, would you know a healthy church if you saw it? Would you know what a healthy church looks like? I think this is really critical to us, especially in this day an age where there is so much false teaching and so much watered-down teaching, I think it is important for us to ask ourselves, what is a good church? As I mentioned to you, I love these nine marks because they help me not only to evaluate what is a healthy church, but how is our church doing? I think every pastor needs some kind of criteria, some kind of standard by which he says, how is our church doing? And maybe we're strong in some areas and weak in other areas and, and things we need to shore up and things we need to do. And those things are important. So I ask you that. I ask you to, to think through that with me over the next three Sunday nights. Would you even know a good church if you saw it? And is your criteria biblical? Well, tonight we're going to look at the first three marks. Then we're going to look at 4, 5, and 6 next Sunday night, 7, 8, and 9 the next Sunday night. Now, I'm not going to be including all the scripture that I included when I first did this series in 2006 because that would take 10 weeks. Um, so you can order that. I mean, obviously, read the book. You could order that series if you wanted from the church office. So what I am doing these next three Sunday nights is reviewing with you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter said it is good for us to be reminded of these things. There is something about repetition. There is something about reminder that is important for us as the people of God because we easily forget. So... Let's look at the first three marks of a healthy church tonight. The first mark, our first point is Mark 1, expositional preaching. And I would say, if you read the book, and if you listen to Mark Dever and other messages, this is the foundation for all the other marks. Mark number one 
sets the tone for the other eight marks. If you don't have this mark, you're not going to have the other eight. So this is not only number one, it is number one for a reason, and that is because it forms the foundation. What is expositional preaching? You may have heard somebody say, our pastor is a, an expository preacher. What do they mean by that? Well, I want you to think about the word expose. It can be used in a negative sense. A criminal can be exposed. Maybe he's been stealing money from his company and finally it is exposed what he has been doing. This time of year you may be cleaning some of your windows or may do that in the spring and you clean your window and it looks really good until the sun shines through the window. And then you see that window isn't as clean as I thought it was because the sun exposes it. It can be used in a positive sense. A diamond is put under a light to expose all of its beauty and its different angles and edges. A stained glass window is never fully exposed until the light shines through it and you see all of its color and its brilliance. Well, in expositional preaching, the speaker seeks to bring out the full depth and beauty of a passage of Scripture. We preach scripture as it is written. Now that may seem like a simple thing. A lot of churches will say, yeah, we preach the word of God. And I think they intend to, but they don't always preach scripture as it is written. And that is sometimes pastors will read a passage of scripture talk about it for a little bit and then go off in a completely different direction and you walk away from that church service thinking that was a really good sermon but I it has I have no idea what it had to do with that passage of scripture I don't know what it had to do with the passage that he read. It's almost like some pastors will use a passage as a launching pad to talk about something else that really doesn't have anything to do with that passage. Expositional preaching believes that you take the passage of Scripture and you explain it as it is written. What is the historical background? What is the original, or who was the original audience? And how would they have understood the passage or the message? What is the grammatical context? Not just the Greek or Hebrew context, but what's the English context? How is the verse or passage to be understood in the context of the book and in the context of the Bible as a whole? One of the men up here tonight in the video said, you just can't take a passage of scripture and rip it out of context. So many false teachings are based on scripture that has been taken out of context. Mark Dever writes, what they say about real estate is true in understanding the Bible. The three most important factors are location, location, location. You understand a text of scripture where it is. You understand it in the context in which it is inspired. What is the context in which that was written? In the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 8, there's that wonderful chapter where Ezra, who was a priest and scribe, 
along with the Levites and their name, their specific names are given. They gather the people of Israel together and they gather them together to hear the word of God. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, it says this, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And let me tell you, there's a good biblical definition of expositional preaching. It is to read from the word of God and to make it clear and to give the meaning so that the people can understand what is being read, so that the people can understand the word of God and apply it to their own lives and their own situations. We think of that famous text in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17 where Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And as many times as you have heard that passage of scripture, what a powerful statement about the word of God. All scripture is breathed out from the very breath of God and is useful. It is useful for teaching. It is useful for rebuking. It is useful for correcting and for training in righteousness. Everything is here. Everything is in the word of God to thoroughly equip you to become a man or woman of God. Now, an important part of expositional preaching is taking the meaning of the passage and applying it directly to my life in the present day culture. I actually shared this with you two weeks ago on Sunday morning as we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, a passage that applies directly to the situation and culture that we live in right now. As I shared with you two weeks ago, you don't have to make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. You teach it in all of its clarity and all of its beauty. If you expose it for what it is, you will find that it is very relevant to your life, to your problems, to your issues, to your family, to your parenting, to your marriage, and to your culture. So expositional preaching, I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not some academic exercise or we're just learning facts about the Bible. No, it is very applicable, very relevant to right where we are. And if the passage is not applied to my life, it's not applied to my world, then the preacher has failed in his responsibility. But the very heart and soul of expositional preaching is this. The main point of the passage of Scripture becomes the main point of the sermon. Mark Dever mentioned that in the video. I must not preach, or excuse me, I must preach what it says, not what I want it to say. And that is very important to all of our Bible study and all of our teaching. I don't care whether you teach in toddlers or beginners or in the ambassador class, in a small group, when you teach, remember the main point of Scripture should become the main point of what you teach. That is what you are there to do. Not to have it say what you want it to say, but have it to say what it actually says. 
the diligent student of the Bible is all often surprised by the meaning of the passage. And that's why we have to be careful. Often, I will hear even people in churches like ours, and I know they mean well, so I don't mean this critically, take a verse and use it, and I know it's not in context. It's something that they heard somebody say, and they use it completely out of context. And, and people, we need to use the word of God carefully. I really have appreciated over the years John MacArthur. You probably guessed that. Some of you are probably saying, yeah, we see you quote him all the time. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about him is that he always tries to look at scripture in a fresh way when he preaches. He said he will often have like his musicians or those who are putting together the service say, oh, so what are you preaching on Sunday morning? What are you preaching on? And he'll say this, I haven't finished my study yet, so I don't know. Until I get to the end of my study, until I do an in-depth study of that passage, I don't know what I'm preaching on. In fact, what I thought I was going to preach on may be different than what I actually preach on when I get through studying the passage. And that's how we need to approach the Bible. That's the heart and soul of expositional preaching is let the Bible speak for itself. Don't speak for it or what you think you want it to say. You know, in some of these more contemporary churches today, and I know the pastors mean well, but sometimes they like to publish their sermon title you know, like weeks in advance to attract people to come. You know, like SpongeBob SquarePants and the gospel or the born identity and being a good husband. And, you know, it's just, they're tricky sermon titles and, and, and they're attractive. But usually weeks in advance, you really don't know what that text is going to say until you get in there, until you dive in there. You don't know what the passage is going to say. Years ago, some of you may remember this if you're a little older. Years ago, Grand Rapids Baptist College and Seminary, which is now Cornerstone and Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, but Grand Rapids Baptist College and Seminary used to have a Bible conference every year. And they would bring in great speakers from all over the nation. Bible conferences aren't quite what they used to be because with the internet now, we have access to great sermons all the time, but that didn't used to be so. And so they would bring in these great speakers. And I remember one time, well, a man they used to bring in on a regular basis was Warren Wearsby. And Warren Wearsby once said this. He said, when you walk away from a church service, after you've heard a sermon, here's how you evaluate the sermon. Do I understand that passage of Scripture better and do I understand better how it applies to my life than when I came into that service? So many times we evaluate sermons by, oh, he was so funny. And you know, some pastors are great storytellers. And sometimes they tell stories that make us cry. But when you walk away, it's not how funny was it, how heart-wrenching was it, it isn't, boy, I'll remember that story for the rest of my life that he told. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those things. 
you walk away asking yourself the question, do I understand the word of God in that passage better than when I came in? The first mark of a healthy church, when you're looking for a church, is do they preach the word of God? Do they preach and teach the word of God in all of its fullness? Number two, mark two, is biblical theology. So the second mark of a healthy church is, is their theology based squarely on the Bible? Not on some writer somewhere, but is it based squarely on the Bible? I'd like you to think carefully about the following statement. If you don't understand the true character of God as revealed in the Bible, you will never understand the importance of Christ's death and resurrection. If you don't understand the character and attributes of God, you will never fully understand the need, the need for Christ's death and resurrection. In Exodus chapter 34, where I had you turn, I want to just read verses 4 through 8 for you. Moses has destroyed the first two tablets. God has given him the new tablets. And it says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. In verses 6 and 7, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But watch the transition. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In this passage, we have a powerful statement about God but we have a statement that seems almost contradictory. It says that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but then it says he will by no means clear the guilty. How can both statements be true? It reminds us of this. The attributes of God are always in perfect balance. What seems like a contradiction to us is not to God. He is many things at the very same time in perfectness and in beauty and in holiness. The God of love at the very same time is the God of wrath and judgment. The God of justice is also the God of mercy. The God of purity and holiness is also the God who forgives sins. And if we don't understand both sides of those things, we will not understand God. 
In his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Mark Dever lists five examples of the essential attributes of God. I just want to list them for you. These are just examples. These are the things we must believe about God. This is not an exhaustive list, but an example list. First, the God of the Bible is a creating God. He has created the heavens and the earth. God created the nation of Israel and chose it for himself. God created the church as the main instrument for displaying his glory. If God is a creating God, then he owns this world, and he alone determines how it should be run. I want you to think about that. If God has created the world, then he alone owns the world, and he alone determines how it should be run. That runs us smack dab into this culture. I mean, we collide head on with our culture. When we say our God created in fiat creation, spoke creation into being, when we say he owns the world and he alone can determine what is done with the world, that goes against everything that the secular world believes and teaches. Second, the God of the Bible is a holy God. The Bible tells us that God has a passion for his holiness. He is not morally indifferent. He will not allow anyone into his presence who isn't perfectly holy. Holiness is God's foundational attribute, as I have shared with you before. It is the only attribute that is repeated in the Bible in a threefold manner. God is holy, holy, holy. Third, the God of the Bible is a faithful God. The very essence of God is to be faithful to who he is, faithful to his promises, and faithful to his people. But not only is God faithful to his promises, plural. He is faithful to his promise, singular, the promise to send a Messiah, a Savior. The Messiah would not only fulfill the promises of a coming king, but he would also fulfill the promises of a suffering Savior. We live in a world of unfaithfulness, a changing world. Spouses are not always faithful to one another. People in relationships are not always faithful to one another. We live in a world that is constantly changing. Technology is changing. We're all changing. We're all growing older all the time. But we have an immutable God, a God who never changes. And though everyone around you is unfaithful, God will always be faithful. Fourth, the God of the Bible is a loving God. God loves the very people who have sinned and rebelled against him. God is filled with compassion for his wayward sheep. God is more than love. We'll look at this a little bit more. But he is love. He is perfect love. Five, the God of the Bible is a sovereign God. He rules over all things. How sovereign is he? One of my favorite passages on the sovereignty of God is Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar has sinned against God. He looked at his kingdom and said, look at this kingdom that I have built for my own glory. And God curses him. And he goes insane for seven years. 
He roams the earth like an animal. But at the end of the seven years, God restores his reason, restores his sanity. He realizes what a fool he has been, and he lifts his eyes to heaven and praises the God of Daniel. And this is what he says, Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. He says of God, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, what have you done? And I want you to think of that middle sentence. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. That is our God. God in his sovereignty is going to bring this world as we know it to a close. He's going to usher in a new age, a new heavens and a new earth. The second mark of a healthy church is biblical theology. Folks, we can't make God out to be who we want him to be. We must accept him as he has revealed himself. That is so important. You take an issue like this same-sex marriage issue, and this is just one of many examples that could be given. And you hear people saying, well, God loves gay people just like they are. He doesn't want them to change. God doesn't judge people because of the way they are. Jimmy Carter said God loves homosexuals and doesn't want them to change. Folks, that's not the God of the Bible. That's a God of our own imagination. And all around you every day are people who are creating a God of their own imagination, of their own thinking. Number three, Mark 3, the gospel. The gospel. The gospel cannot be anything you want it to be. The gospel must be the gospel of Scripture. And so to understand what the gospel is, we must first understand what it is not. Number one, the gospel is not simply that we are okay. It is human nature to ignore the reality of our sin and believe that we are, we are okay just the way we are. The vast majority of people that we interact with every day think I'm not so bad. And churches become a place for self-esteem and for self-awareness. Second, the gospel is not simply that God is love. God is love, but that's not all he is. God is often presented, and I just mentioned this, God is often presented as a loving God who accepts you just the way you are. Surely a loving God is not judgmental. He allows everyone to go to heaven, and all religions are equally valid. I wonder how many thousands, if not millions of people, believe that. That God is a loving God who is not judgmental. He's going to send everyone to heaven and all religions are equally valid. Number three, the gospel is not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend. Jesus does not become the friend, or excuse me, Jesus does become the friend of those who repent of their sin and trust him as Savior, but he's not everybody's friend. A person can't just say, 
I like the life and teachings of Jesus, and I want him to be my best friend. We've all got to be careful with this. Sometimes in churches, in vacation Bible school, or in a children's class, they say, kids, how many of you want Jesus to be your friend? And so 12 kids raise their hands, and then they walk away and say, oh, 12 kids gave their life to Jesus today. That's not the gospel, folks. And we adults are just as guilty of it. We work with someone and they say, don't you want Jesus to be your friend? Jesus can be your best friend. And folks, through repentance and faith, he can be. But just to say that Jesus can be your best friend is not the gospel at all. Sometimes people like the example of Jesus but are unwilling to take it any further. I want you to know tonight, Jesus is not Mahatma Gandhi. He's not. Many people like Gandhi for his teachings on civil disobedience. They kind of disregard the fact that he's a Hindu or was a Hindu. But they like what they perceive to be his humility and and his teachings. And maybe there are some good things that he said, but that's not what the gospel is. It's not to say, oh, I like that, Jesus. And I think I'll take some of the things that he said and try to live by them. The gospel is not simply that we should live right. Becoming a Christian is not a decision to clean up your life and start doing good things. You don't become a Christian because you've decided to be a good moral person. Oh, this is so delicate, so tricky sometimes. I will hear even good Christians say something like, you know, some woman passed away or some man passed away. And, and they'll be asked, was she a Christian? And, and they'll say something like this, well, she did so many good things for so many people. I just can't believe she's not in heaven. Folks, trying to live a good life and doing as many good deeds as you can has nothing to do with salvation and going to heaven. Mark Dever writes this, but as startling as it may be to this kind of thinking, the biblical gospel is not fundamentally about such things. To be a Christian is not merely to live a life of love, follow the golden rule, or practice possibility thinking, or indeed to do anything that we can do ourselves. The gospel calls for a more radical response than any of these things allow for. The gospel isn't merely an additive that can make our already good lives better. No, the gospel is a message of wonderful good news for those who know and realize their desperation before God. The gospel is not that we are okay. The gospel is not that God is only a God of love. The gospel is not that Jesus wants to be your friend. The gospel is not that we should try to live a good life. So if that's what the gospel is not, what is the true gospel? What is the true gospel? Mark Dever offers six things. I'll go through these fairly quickly with you, but I want to say to you tonight, these are six good things to remember. When you want to ask yourself, what is the gospel? Number one, something is radically wrong with me. Number one, something is radically wrong with me. I haven't just made mistakes. I haven't just made bad decisions. I have sinned and rebelled against God. 
My sin has separated me from God. Paul says in that famous passage in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Number one, something is radically wrong with me. Number two, I deserve to be punished eternally for my sins. What I deserve is not heaven. I deserve, because of my sin and rebellion, I deserve to be condemned eternally in hell. I deserve God's judgment. Number three, I cannot save myself no matter how hard I try. No matter, excuse me, no matter how, good, how many good works I do, no matter how hard I try to live a good life, I cannot save myself. Number four, Jesus Christ died as a substitute for my sins. Jesus Christ died in my place. Jesus Christ died the death that I could not die because I deserve to die for my sins. The perfect Lamb of God became my substitute on the cross. Number five, Jesus Christ is the only way I can come to God. All religions do not lead to heaven. Only Jesus Christ does. All religions do not lead to heaven. Only Jesus Christ does. And number six, so important in a healthy church, I must make a conscious decision to either accept or reject the gospel. I can't just hear about it or think about it. I must make a decision. The gospel demands a response. Repentance and belief are, in, are essential components for making a decision for Christ. When Paul was with the, the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20:21, 20, he says this, I have declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came preaching the gospel in that great section in Mark chapter 1, he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Third mark of a healthy church is getting the gospel right. If you go to a church, ask yourself this, do they understand the biblical gospel? Mark number one, expositional preaching. Mark number two, biblical theology. We must believe in God as he has revealed himself, not as we would like him to be, and mark number three is the good news. It is the gospel, and it is getting the gospel right. So over the next couple of weeks, we will continue to ask and answer this question. What is a healthy church? Let's pray together. Father, help us to be a healthy church. I pray that you will help us as a church to preach the word of God in all of its beauty, 
all of its wonder. I pray that you will help us to have a healthy biblical theology, believing in you as you have revealed yourself in Scripture. I pray that you will help us to get the gospel right. Oh, Lord, help us to evaluate and reevaluate who we are as a church. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.